This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In 2015, the geneticist Jerry Coyne published a book titled Faith Versus Fact, Why Science and Religion Are Incompatible. And he com commented on the book in an interview in the National Geographic later on, and he said this, if you teach evolution, as he does, you're teaching the one form of science that hits Abrahamic religions in the solar plexus. There are a number of things about evolution and science that undermine religion. First of all, the fact that the Genesis story is wrong. There's no evidence that it, there's any qualitative difference between humans and other species. We're not special products of God's creation. We're learning a lot about the universe and what we're seeing is all a naturalistic process. We are creatures of physics made of molecules. Therefore, our thoughts and behaviors are also the results of molecular motions. One of the meanings of superstition in the Oxford English Dictionary is a belief that is unfounded or irrational. Since I see all religious belief as unfounded and irrational, I consider religion to be superstition. Uh, well, his words suggest that uh, science and religion may not always be on the best of terms. They're not only incompatible, but they are seemed even openly hostile to each other. Something like a punch in the solar plexus, he says. In his book, he uses the word war to describe the relationship. He says, I maintain that religion and science are engaged in a kind of war, a war for understanding, a war about whether we have or should have good reasons for what we accept as true. Now, the idea of a war between science and religion is nothing new. It goes back at least to the 19th century, marked by the publication of two books. One was The History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science by John William Draper. The second, A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology and Christendom by Andrew Dickinson White. White describes the struggle rather vividly as, he says, a war waged longer, with battles fiercer, with sieges more persistent, with strategy more shrewd than in any of the comparatively transient warfares of Caesar or Napoleon. In 1995, however, Daniel Dennett announced that the war was over and he helpfully gave the results. He wrote, science has won and religion has lost. Darwin's idea has banished the book of Genesis to the limbo of quaint mythology. Now, some might argue that his announcement was uh, premature, since they think the war is still going on. Now, others maintain that there never was a war. Historian John Hedley Brook argues, popular generalizations about the relationship between science and religion, whether couched in terms of war or peace, simply do not stand up to serious investigation. Theologian Joshua Moritz sums up this position in the title of his article, 
the war that never was, exploding the myth of the historical conflict between Christianity and science. Now, what can we say about these issues? First, I think we should note that the question of the compatibility of religion and science is part of a larger issue regarding the relationship between faith and reason, and that debate has a long history. Down through the centuries, some have found ways to harmonize faith and reason, while others see only conflict. In the early church, some Christians employed Greek philosophy to express doctrinal teachings. The Council of Nicaea in 325, for instance, used philosophical notions such as person and essence to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity. The God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one essence in three persons. Not everyone was happy, however, with the marriage of faith and philosophy. One father of the church, Tertullian, was especially displeased. As he put it, what has Athens, that is the city of Greek learning, to do with Jerusalem, the city of faith? Tell me, what is the sense of this itch for idle speculation? What does it prove, this useless affectation of a fastidious curiosity? It was highly appropriate that Thales, the first Greek philosopher, while his eyes were roaming the heavens in astronomical observation, should have tumbled into a well. This mishap may well serve to illustrate the fate of all who occupy themselves with the stupidities of philosophy. Centuries later, the medieval Franciscan Jacopone de Toto shared the same sentiment when he lamented that Paris, the great city of medieval learning, has destroyed Assisi, the city of the simple faith of St. Francis. In whimsical verse, he made clear which side of this war he was on. He wrote, Plato and Socrates may contend and all the breath in their bodies spend, arguing without an end. But what's it all to me? Only a pure and simple mind, straight to heaven its way doth find, greets the king while far behind lags the world's philosophy. The 19th century philosopher August Comte argued that reason has gradually replaced faith as humans developed from the theological stage of society, where humans invent gods and priests are the rulers, to the metaphysical stage, where gods are replaced by abstract concepts as principles of explanation, to the positive stage, where empirical science provides true explanations established by scientific method. In our time, the question of the relationship between faith and reason continues. Today, atheistic scientists often present themselves as representatives of reason, while entrenched fundamentalists are taken as defenders of faith. To understand the dynamics of this conflict, we need to know something about the relation between faith and reason. Now, the nature of faith and reason is easy enough to illustrate. Faith has to do with what we believe and reason with what we know. On an everyday level, there are some things we believe and others that we know. Generally, we say we have knowledge of things we've seen or experienced. For instance, I know that my computer screen is in front of me right now because I can see it. And I can see most of you, though I think some of you are off the edge of things here. But there are many things, other things that I don't know or haven't experienced directly. I may accept or believe them on the authority of someone else. We do that every day. 
say, when we watch the evening news, trusting the veracity of the newscaster. There are also things that some people know, but others take on faith. Now, if you're a physicist, you might know that E equals mc squared. You've done the math, figured out why this is the case. But if you're an English major, you probably just accept it on faith. That's what I tend to do as a philosophy major myself. There are some things, however, that lie utterly beyond our grasp, at least in this life. I think of the statements we recite in the Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, who was incarnate of the Virgin Mary, suffered death and rose again on the third day. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. These are truths that lie beyond our knowledge. We accept them on faith. And accepting them on faith is a reasonable thing to do. If it's reasonable to accept the evening news on the authority of the newscaster, it's all the more reasonable to accept the good news of the gospel on the authority of the Son of God. As Jesus says, For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Since truth is one, and God is the ultimate source of all truth, there can be no real conflict between the truth that God reveals and the truth that we discover through science. As Aquinas explains, although the truth of the Christian faith surpasses the capacity of reason, nevertheless, that truth that human reason is naturally endowed to know cannot be opposed to the truth of the Christian faith. Today, a growing number of scientists and theologians are eager to overcome apparent conflicts between science and religion through dialogue and understanding. This is the work of the Center for Theology and the Natural Sciences at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, where I teach at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology. Ian Barber, who generously endowed that center, dedicated his life to the science-religion dialogue. In his book, Religion in an Age of Science, he mapped out four helpful models to characterize the relation between science and religion. These are conflict, independence, dialogue, and integration. And I use them to structure the next part of this talk. So we begin with conflict. We've already seen some thinkers who are convinced that the conflict between faith and reason is inevitable. When conflict is unavoidable, the tendency is to choose sides. We saw how Tertullian and Jacoponi de Toto chose faith at the expense of reason. Today, some people do the same. Biblical fundamentalists, for instance, cling to a literal interpretation of scripture and deny the findings of science. But if believers can become entrenched, so can scientists. Carl Sagan, for instance, famously proclaimed that the material cosmos is all there is or ever was or ever will be. I think that such conflicts arise fundamentally when theologians and scientists violate the limits of their respective disciplines. Pope Leo XIII pointed this out long ago. He said, there can never indeed be any real discrepancy between the theologian and the physicist, as long as each confines himself within his own lines and both are careful. As St. Augustine warns us not to make rash assertions. 
To see the lines or borders of science and religion, we might consider their methods. Science uses a quantitative method in its study of the world. The method excludes whatever is not quantifiable or measurable. We might say it involves a kind of methodological naturalism. The rigorous employment of that method has led to all the advances in science, technology, and medicine that we've enjoyed over the last few centuries. The very success of that method, however, led some to proclaim that science provides not just an effective method for studying reality, but the only possible method for such study, since, as they assumed, reality itself is essentially quantitative. Through this assumption, they transformed the methodological naturalism of science into a metaphysical naturalism a claim about the nature of reality itself. It's important to notice, however, that this claim itself is not a scientific conclusion, since science could never establish it. The claim belongs rather to a kind of unfounded ideology known as scientism. Since that ideology embraces metaphysical materialism and naturalism, it must contradict any religion that affirms the existence of a spiritual or supernatural reality beyond the limits of science. I think that much of what is commonly called the conflict between science and religion is actually a conflict between religion and scientism. Looking back at the quotation I used to open this talk, it seems to me that Jerry Coyne may be uh, secretly or openly subscribing to a kind of scientism. He says, we're learning a lot about the universe and what we are seeing is that it is all a naturalistic process. But I think, of course, if your only method for looking at the universe is the natural, naturalistic method of science, it's not surprising that what you find is a naturalistic process. Coyne calls religious belief unfounded and irrational. But I think, again, if your only standard for a founded and rational truth is the empirical method of science, whatever lies beyond that method will appear unfounded and irrational. Coyne's scientism is confirmed in his book, Faith versus Fact, where he says, truth is simply what is what exists in reality and can be verified by rational and independent observers. I say, having assumed that truth requires empirical observation, he feels free to draw the following conclusion. He says, it is not true that somebody had a revelation from God. The scientific claims can be corroborated by anyone with the right tools while a revelation, though perhaps reflecting someone's real perception, says nothing about reality. For unless that revelation has empirical content, it cannot be corroborated. This implies that all truth and all reality must lie within the limits of empirical observation. This would mean that since the divine trinity cannot be empirically observed, it must be untrue. But of course, Coyne's assumption that all truth must be empirically observable cannot itself be empirically observed. 
The physicist Arthur Eddington has a great story about the dangers of assuming that your method of investigation is all-encompassing. He tells of an ichthyologist who, after carefully studying ocean life for many years, using a net with a two-inch mesh, solemnly concluded that, quote, no sea creature is less than two inches long. If you arbitrarily assume that all reality must lie within the limits of scientific method, there's a lot you can miss. If scientists can overstep the bounds of their discipline, theologians can do likewise. Theology studies God as the creator, the first cause of all things. As such, God can directly act and, mysterious and miraculously act in the natural world. God can do miracles. But God also wills to share his causality with creatures and to act through them as secondary causes. So theologians can be faulted if they rush to invoke the primary causality of God and forget the secondary causality of creatures. Thomas Aquinas points out how this can happen. He's using the science and philosophy of his day, and he says, when we ask the reason why in regard to a natural effect, we can give a reason based on approximate cause, provided, of course, that we trace back all things to the divine will as a first cause. Thus, if the question is asked, why is wood heated in the presence of fire? It is answered, because heating is the natural action of fire. And this is so because heat is the proper accident. But this is the result of its proper form and so on until we come to the divine will. Hence, if a person answers someone who asks why wood is heated and says, because God willed it, he is answering appropriately, provided he intends to take the question back to a first cause, but not appropriately if he means to exclude all other causes. And I think that's what sometimes happens. Secondary causes are excluded when God is prematurely invoked as the cause of some natural phenomenon that science has not yet explained. This is problematic in two ways. First, it suggests that the divine explanation of the phenomenon is somehow on the same level and so possibly in competition with any natural explanations that may eventually be found. Secondly, it entails the possibility that the divine cause will have to be withdrawn when a natural explanation is discovered. In this way, it turns the transcendent God into a kind of local called God of the gaps, who temporarily fills the holes in scientific accounts, but must then retreat before the advance of science. As Francis Collins, the geneticist who headed the Human Genome Project, as he explains, a word of caution is needed when inserting specific divine action by God in any area where scientific understanding is currently lacking. From solar eclipses in olden times to the movement of the planets in the Middle Ages to the origins of life today, this God of the Gaps approach has all too often done a disservice to religion. Faith that places God in the gaps of current understanding about the natural world may be headed for a crisis 
if advances in science subsequently fill those gaps. So we move to the second model, independence. Some thinkers maintain that science and religion are incapable of conflict since they belong to different realms and so have nothing to do with each other. So you might say, as giraffes never get into fights with sea slugs, so science need never fight with religion since they belong to different realms. Stephen Jay Gould endorses this idea with his notion of non-overlapping magisteria, N-O-M-A, NOMA. Science and religion have distinct magisteria or areas of inquiry that don't overlap. Science belongs to the objective world of fact, while religion belongs to the subjective world of value or meaning. The theologian Robert Rudolph Bultmann seems to subscribe to this approach in his method of scriptural interpretation. He thought that science explains the facts of what happens in the world in a way that left no room for God's action in the world. Whenever scripture appears to speak of some objective action of God, such as in the act of creation or in the parting of the Red Sea, it's using mythological language that has to be then demythologized if we're to understand its true meaning. It must be translated into subjective statements about human hopes and fears and expectations. So, for instance, the statement that God created the world really means only that we feel a sense of dependence on God. Religion could never make objective statements of fact since it belonged to the subjective realm of meaning. Religion and science are each valid in their own realm, but they really have nothing to say to each other. The problem with this approach is that we don't live in two worlds. We live in one world. And in that one world, we are both believers and knowers. As believers, we sometimes need to make factual statements about the real world, as in the fundamental scriptural interpretation regarding the life and death of Jesus, then they crucified him, Mark 15, 24. As knowers, we seek not only data, but also meaning and significance in what we know. So we move to the third category or model. I think the relationship between religion and science is better characterized in Barber's last two models, dialogue and integration. In dialogue, certain points of contact are established between religion and science that allow them to talk to each other. For instance, in his book, The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief, Francis Collins argues that biologists and believers can find common ground in the notion of theistic evolution, what he calls biologos. James Jones argues that the compatibility of religion and cognitive science is possible. In his book, Can Science Explain Religion? The Cognitive Science Debate. Arnold Penzias, one of the discoverers of the background radiation left over from the Big Bang, thinks that the very discoveries of science lead it closer to religion. He writes, Astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing, one with the very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the conditions required to permit life, and one which has an underlying 
one might say, supernatural plan. Thus, the observations of modern science seem to lead to the same conclusions as the centuries-old religious institution and intuition. The Catholic Church has actively fostered the dialogue between religion and science by establishing the still-thriving Vatican Observatory in 1789 and the Pontifical Academy of Sciences in 1936. Beyond dialogue, there is the fourth model of integration. Since faith and reason use the same language to describe the same world, they must overlap. And so the conclusions of one may have consequences for the other. So, for example, when Isaac Newton and William Paley saw scientific evidence for design in nature, they considered it legitimate to use that evidence to speak of God. And when the Big Bang Theory offered scientific evidence that the universe had a beginning, Pope Pius XII thought it appropriate to point out the consonance between this scientific theory and the Christian doctrine of creation. Conversely, as evidence mounted in favor of the theory of biological evolution, it seemed appropriate to reconsider some traditional interpretations of the creation story in Genesis. The integration of faith and reason presents us with the, with the challenge of determining when the tenets of faith should be modified in accordance with the findings of reason, and when reason should be directed by faith. A difficult question. For guidance, I suggest we turn to that master of difficult questions, St. Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas has already answered to the question of whether faith or philosophy should take precedence when there's an apparent conflict between them. We might call it his little old lady argument. After pointing out the different opinions of ancient philosophers on whether or not the human being has an immortal soul, he asks, quote, but what little old lady, Latin vitula, what little old lady is there today who does not know that the soul is immortal? Faith can do much more than philosophy, so if philosophy is contrary to faith, it is not to be accepted. But sometimes a quick and ready answer isn't adequate, so Aquinas goes into greater detail in his Summa Theologica when he discusses how to interpret the passage of scripture that asserts that there are waters above the heavens, Genesis 1-7. First, he points out that we should not doubt that the waters are there, since scripture says they are, but we need to decide what exactly those waters are. Aquinas knows from the science of his day that physical water cannot exist above the firmament since the heavenly bodies are not composed of the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water. He points out that a primitive philosophy, such as that of Thales, might be able to show that there are waters above and below the heavens, since in that philosophy the whole cosmos is nothing but water in one form or another. In the philosophy and science of his time, however, the idea of water literally existing above the firmament could be, he says, shown to be false for solid reasons, and so could not be held to be the sense of Holy Scripture. 
After explaining that Moses was talking to ignorant people when he wrote this passage of scripture, Aquinas goes on to offer an interpretation of the passage that's in keeping to the science of his day. A similar method for reconciling faith and reason can be found in Galileo. Galileo thought that the surest way to resolve the controversy on the movement of the heavens would be, he says, to give a host of proofs that the Copernican position is true and that the contrary cannot be maintained at all. Thus, since no two true truths can contradict each other, this and the Bible must be perfectly harmonious. The Bible can never speak untruth whenever its true meaning is understood. But the meaning of the Bible is often not the unadorned grammatical meaning, since the Bible often accommodates its language to the common people who are rude and unlearned. Therefore, in discussions of physical problems, we ought to begin not from the authority of scriptural passages, but from sense experiences and necessary demonstrations. Since divine revelation and the phenomena of nature both proceed from the divine word, nothing physical which sense experience sets before our eyes or which necessary demonstration proves to us ought to be called in question upon the testimony of biblical passages, which may have some different meaning behind their words. After all, he points out, quoting Cardinal Baronius, the intention of the Holy Spirit is to teach us how one goes to heaven and not how the heavens go. There are times, he concludes, when reason should give way to faith and times when what has been accepted as part of faith should give way to reason. He says, from the above words, I may deduce this doctrine that in the books of the sages of this world there are contained some physical truths which are soundly demonstrated and others that are merely stated. As to the former, it is the office of wise divines to show how they do not contradict Holy Scripture. As to the propositions which are stated but not rigorously demonstrated, anything contrary to the Bible involved in them must be held undoubtedly false and should be proved so by every possible means. G.K. Chesterton concurs with this reasoning of Aquinas and so implicitly also with Galileo, and he formulates his argument in his usual pithy way. He says, In the matter of the inspiration of Scripture, Aquinas fixed first on the obvious fact which was forgotten by four furious centuries of sectarian battle, that the meaning of scripture is very far from self-evident and that we must often interpret it in light of other truths. If a literal interpretation is really and flatly contradicted by an obvious fact, why then we can only say that the literal interpretation must be a false interpretation. But the fact must really be an obvious fact. And unfortunately, 19th century scientists were just as ready to jump to the conclusion that any guess about nature was an obvious fact 
as were 17th century sectarians, to jump to the conclusion that any guess about scripture was an obvious explanation. Thus, private theories about what the Bible ought to mean and premature theories about what the world ought to mean have met in loud and widely advertised controversy, and this clumsy collision of two very impatient forms of ignorance was known as the quarrel of science and religion. Well, if St. Thomas Aquinas can be helpful to us here, I think St. John Paul II can also. He describes faith and reason poetically as two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. It's a very practical kind of poetry. We're meant to fly, and we can't fly very well on just one wing. Contemplation of truth lies at the heart of our Christian life. Christ came to bear witness to the truth and prayed that his followers might be consecrated in truth. But how will we fulfill that sublime vocation, or will we rise to the contemplation of truth, if we don't learn, as it were, how to flap our wings? In his encyclical Faith and Reason, John Paul offers us a lesson in wing flapping, along with a bit of encouragement to get us out of the nest. John Paul sees that there are any number of factors that might keep us in the nest. Some philosophical wings, for instance, are not suitable matches for the wing of faith. Eclecticism, for example, which gathers ideas and principles at random, lacks the precision needed for flying. Historicism, which sees truth only within the limits of a given historical context, lacks the transcendence essential for soaring. Scientism, which limits reality to the bounds of scientific method, is too confining for flight. Rationalism accepts only what can be grasped or established by reason, and so tries to fly on only one wing, refusing to recognize the wing of faith. Fundamentally, John Paul maintains that any philosophy that abandons the study of being, the vital search for the ultimately real, will fall into attitudes of skepticism or relativism that are incompatible with faith. If some philosophies are not compatible with faith, there are also some brands of faith that are incompatible with reason. Some believers, for instance, embrace a kind of traditionalism or fideism that doesn't allow them to recognize, as John Paul says, the importance of rational knowledge and philosophical discourse for understanding of faith. If some believers shut themselves off from reason in this way, others allow themselves to be swayed uncritically by philosophical opinions and are overly eager to reinterpret the faith to fit the current popular philosophy. In contrast to such one-winged options, John Paul insists on the integration of faith and reason. Behind his insistence is the fundamental conviction, long part of the Catholic tradition, that since there is ultimately only one source of truth, the one who is truth itself, there can be no contradiction between the truth that reason discovers and that which is revealed by faith. In this context, John Paul refers especially to Thomas Aquinas' conviction that 
whatever its source, truth, is of the Holy Spirit. Reason cannot close itself off from the truth of faith if it's to achieve its goal, the possession of ultimate truth. And faith cannot ignore reason if it's to avoid devolving into a mere matter of feeling and myth and superstition. For John Paul, the integration of faith and reason is not just an intellectual nicety, but an essential element of authentic Christian life. The Pope applies this principle to science and religion. He writes, science can purify religion from error and superstition. Religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. Each can draw the other into a wider world, a world in which both can flourish. John Paul uses St. Augustine to show the necessity of integrating faith and reason. According to Augustine, to believe is nothing other than to think with assent. Believers are also thinkers. In believing, they think, and in thinking, they believe. If faith does not think, it is nothing. Aquinas also argues the importance of reflecting intellectually on what we believe. Otherwise, as he says, we might find ourselves making correct statements, but with empty heads. Belief is not just thinking, but thinking with assent. Again, as Augustine says, if there is no assent, there is no faith, for without assent, one does not really believe. To believe only what reason can explain is not really to believe at all. If I believe you only when you tell me what I already know, I'm not really believing you at all. If I believe only the tenets of faith that I can rationally comprehend, I'm not really believing at all. Either one accepts all of the faith, or one has really not accepted any of it. Using reason to reflect on our faith is not a matter of critiquing the faith to decide whether it makes sense within the limits of reason. Rather, we use reason to plumb the depths of the mysteries of what God has revealed, and since what God reveals is ultimately himself, we plumb the depths of the mystery of God. Just as when you fall in love with someone, you want to know all about them, so when we fall in love with God, we want to use all our human powers, mind, soul, and heart, to know and to love him. As Jesus commands us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Given the interrelation of faith and reason, John Paul wants to encourage all who seek after knowledge, whether through theology, philosophy, or science. In his encyclical, he first thanks theologians for their service to the church and urges them to pay special attention to the philosophical implications of the word of God and to be sure to reflect in their work all the speculative and practical breadth of the science of theology. He also admonishes philosophers not to set themselves goals that are too modest in their philosophizing, nor to abandon the passion for ultimate truth, the eagerness to search for it, or the audacity to forge new paths in the search. 
At the same time, he reminds them that it is faith which stirs reason to move beyond all isolation and willingly to run risks so that it may attain whatever is beautiful, good, and true. Faith thus becomes the convinced and convincing advocate of reason. Finally, he urges scientists to continue their efforts without ever abandoning the sapiential horizon within which scientific and technological achievements are wedded to the philosophical and ethical values which are the distinctive and indelible mark of the human person. He reminds them that the search for truth, even when it concerns a finite reality of the world or of man, is never ending, but always points beyond to something higher than the immediate object of study, to the questions which give access to mystery. Through the centuries of philosophical and theological reflection, the church deepens its penetration of divine truth. John Paul explains this, quoting from the Second Vatican Council, which says, as the centuries succeed one another, the church constantly progresses towards the fullness of divine truth until the words of God reach their complete fulfillment in her. The Pope uses the image of a circle to illustrate the relation between faith and reason. He says, theology's source and starting point must always be the word of God revealed in history while its final goal will be an understanding of that word, which increases with each passing generation. What matters most is that the believer's reason use its power of reflection in the search for truth, which moves from the word of God towards a better understanding of it. It is as if moving between the twin poles of God's word and a better understanding of it, Reason is offered guidance and is warned against paths that would lead it to stray from revealed truth and to stray in the end from truth pure and simple. Instead, reason is stirred to explore paths which of itself it would not even have suspected it could take. This circular relationship with the word of God leaves philosophy enriched because reason discovers new and unsuspected horizons. What happens historically in the encounter between reason and faith also happens in the experience of the individual Christian. We begin with the word of God, and by rational reflection on it, we come to deeper understanding. Then, with our deeper understanding, we return to the word again, to discover still greater depths. We might say that the church collectively and each Christian individually begins with the activity of circling from revelation to reasoning, from theology to philosophy and science, from faith to reason and back again. Eventually, however, if the practice is effective, we move from circling to centering. We penetrate or touch the mystery at the heart of creation, or rather, that mystery touches us. Here we find the still point, the end of all our searching, and we are touched 
with joy. As St. Augustine tells us, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you.